job cuts um, on the railway and more broadly. So here are just some of the ones that are awaiting us. Over 100 job cuts on Heathrow Express, 450 job cuts at Wabtec in Doncaster, which is uh, around half of the workforce. Select service partners cut in, um, who do catering on railway stations, uh, catering outlets, shops, are set to cut up to 5,000 jobs. Eurostar is making 20% budget savings, hasn't yet announced um, how many jobs that will involve. But this is, this is pretty serious stuff. And these are just the first ones. There'll be more to come. More widely in industry and across society, in other industries, we have Rolls-Royce uh, cutting 9,000 jobs, BP 10,000 jobs, Centrica, which is the owner of British Gas, 5,000 jobs, Bentley 1,000 jobs, Aston Martin, Lagonda 500 jobs, Virgin Atlantic more than 3,000 jobs. EasyJet, 4,500 jobs. Aer Lingus, 900 jobs. P&O, over 1,000 jobs. JCB, 950 jobs. Ovo Energy, 2,600 jobs, etc. So there can be no doubt as to the seriousness of the situation we're in. However, I think it would be a mistake to, uh, although it would be understandable if looking through a list like that, we just think this is just too enormous for us to fight. This is like you're on the beach and you see a tsunami heading towards you and, um, you know, you're not King Canute. How are you going to surely all we can do is run away? But I want to urge comrades to not do that and to say that we can fight these job cuts. And it seems weird to say that, that this is a starting point, but I think this is the starting point, is to decide that we're going to fight them rather than try to just simply accept them, give up, just ameliorate them, just damage limitation. Negotiating the terms of defeat before you've even had a fight is a really bad strategy. It's actually a really bad strategy even for achieving decent terms of defeat. It's always better to, to, to fight to win first. So um, on, on, on a negative way, I want to give a couple of examples of how not to fight job cuts. One way not to fight job cuts is to respond to announcements of job cuts sounding super militant by saying, if there's any compulsory redundancies, we're going to go on strike. Because that's actually giving a green light to the employer to cut jobs so long as they achieve it without compulsory redundancies. And in most cases, all an employer needs to do is either bide their time or offer enough of a payoff for voluntary redundancy that they can do that. And then what you've got, you've still got the job cuts, you've still got the increased unemployment, you've still got the massive increase in workload and stress for the people who are left behind, etc. So we have to fight job cuts, not just compulsory redundancies. Unfortunately, we've had to start off with a bit of a slug off for the RMT here because it's tied itself in a logical knot um, at P&O ferries over the thousand job cuts there by saying, we know we've got a policy against compulsory redundancies, but we, we are prepared to negotiate and accept the proposed framework for compulsory redundancies as though that isn't the same thing. So it's like if you give a little bit of ground, you very soon end up giving a little bit more ground as well. And on the issue of compulsory redundancy, I have to say that although no one, you know, a year ago could foresee the uh, exact detail of the pandemic we're facing this year um, and the economic consequences of that, what's happening now does show that RMT's agreement that Network Rail could drop its no compulsory redundancies policy was very foolish and has put us in a weaker situation now than we could have been in if it had fought to defend that policy. I'm not going to just slag off 
RMT, though, it's, it's important to slug off unions equally <laughs> when needs be. So another example of how not to fight job cuts is uh, the email I got from Unite the Union yesterday, which boasted of a great victory on a, on a particular airline. Um, the great victory being um, that Ryanair is no longer going to cut jobs, you know, following negotiations with Unite, which sounds great. But then you read the next sentence says it's no longer going to cut jobs because we've agreed to three years of pay cuts. OK, how not to fight job cuts is by, you know, selling out other aspects of workers, terms and conditions, the rates of pay, uh, workload, working conditions, safety standards, etc. Partly because it's a bad thing in and of itself, but partly um, one thing we can learn from the 1919 uh, railway strike and other events around that time is when the un so the unions agreed to um, pay cuts in order to save jobs and guess what happened the job cuts came six months later you got pay cuts and job cuts because that's what happens when you give ground to employers they don't shake your hand and go um, well we'll stay here then they, they, they keep pushing you backwards so what I think we want to talk about today is how to fight these job cuts now I don't know how many of you listened in on the joint unions rally yesterday about TfL funding. Um, I listened to about half of it. The reason I say listen rather than take part in is that there was no taking part. So there was no opportunity for anyone to contribute from the floor or even in the chat box. It was useful to hear what the unions and others were saying about the issue. Uh, we need to have the right as rank and file workers to discuss and formulate the strategy to fight these job cuts, not just listen to what union officials have to say about it. So the first thing we need to do is resolve that we want to fight these attacks on jobs and conditions, not trade off conditions for jobs, and that we're fighting to win, not just to limit the damage. We need imaginative and militant industrial action. And one reason for this is that much though I'm in favour of strikes and much those strikes are right up at the top of our most uh, powerful weapons, there is a little bit of an issue about striking to stop, say, a plant closure in that the employer would just, could just go ahead and cut the jobs or close the plant anyway. So I think we have to have other forms of action in our mind as well as strikes, not instead of strikes, as well as strikes. And one of the most powerful ways of fighting specifically against job cuts and specifically where it involves the closure of sites is occupations, workers occupying the workplace, taking it over, keeping it running and so on. So I think we should look at where that's been done successfully by workers in the past and consider that as a tactic. But what we need from industrial action is not just letting off steam, not just protest actions, but properly formulated planned strategy. Why are we taking this action? What do we expect it to achieve? How can we involve people in it, um, etc.? And that needs to be drawn up through rank and file workers taking part in democratic dis discussions that come together and formulate the strategy. If and when we have mass meetings, whether real ones or online ones, they need to be not the sort of place where, as people often say, I'm going to the meeting to find out what the union's doing and get into our heads that actually we're going to the meeting to decide what's, what the union's doing. Okay, so one of the problems we're going to have is that everyone's going to go, well, you know, there's this huge economic crisis, the company hasn't got any money, what, what on earth can we do? There is no, no alternative. So we're going to be stronger in our fight to defend jobs in any given situation if we put forward an alternative. And interestingly enough, uh, we get a little bit of help here from the law. 
if there's any significant number of redundancies in a significant size employer, which most of these, that, all those that I've mentioned are, um, the law gives the trade union the right to propose an alternative to redundancies. So it allows the union to formally propose, for example, we don't need to get rid of these jobs. What we can do is cut the working week to, you know, four days a week, 32 hours and share the work out amongst people. OK, we don't need to cut these jobs. We can cut the chief executive's salary in half. Yeah, the union has a formal right to propose that. It's not proposed in terms of negotiation. It's just the, the, the employer is free to ignore it. However, what I would suggest a union does is not only do that, but then go out and build a campaign on the basis of it. Go and tell everyone you're doing that. Leave for the local, local community saying these jobs are under threat. The company says it hasn't got any money, but we've put this alternative plan to them. Get people to sign up to that alternative plan, etc. So fighting for an alternative, I think, is uh, an important part of the strategy there. I was kind of referring there to localised campaigns, but obviously we're going to be stronger if all the, the different localised campaigns that come up are linked together in a national campaign against job cuts. And also that we don't see these things as fights just for the workers who are losing their jobs. Because when the workers lose their jobs, then other workers suffer as well. Other workers elsewhere in the supply chain, other workers elsewhere in the company, other workers who pick up the, the, the slack from, from the jobs that have been cut, even if they've not been cut themselves. In, when we're talking about defending jobs in public transport, we're talking about defending public transport per se as well. So we need to make the case for uh, public transport and we need to start talking about how public transport, how we would advocate public transport be funded. Now that could be, probably will be, subject for a whole other meeting. So I, I won't say more than about 30 seconds worth of it now. But there's an ideological thing here that I think we really need to get our heads around, right? Is, is the current kind of political discourse talks about public transport as though it is a service to passengers and therefore expects passengers to pay for it. And actually, that's not true. It's not true. For sure, it's a service to you if you travel on the underground. If you travel on the underground to work and back, that's actually more of a service to your employer because it's serving your employer by bringing their workers to work every day. And for retail outlets, it brings their customers to their outlets every day. And it's time the capitalist class that benefits from public transport was made to pay for public transport. There's different models of how to do that. In France, for example, they have a locally levied payroll taxes so employers contribute towards public funding. But we need to make the case for public transport, not just as a service for passengers, but as a service to the whole economy, to the infrastructure of the country. What we're coming down to now is, and this happens whenever there's a crisis, okay? So as you come out of a crisis, now we're coming out of the, gradually out of the COVID pandemic crisis. A hundred years ago, we were coming out of the First World War. In both cases, there's a big fight between the employers and the government on one hand, and the workers and the passengers on the other hand, as to who is gonna bear the cost of this crisis. So we need to be ready politically and ideologically to fight for, um, well, to be them who pays the cost of the crisis, um, not for us to be the ones who bear the cost. And I'll end on this point. This is where capitalist logic kind of betrays itself. Because wasn't it amazing that as soon as coronavirus came along, no one's saying, oh, the free market will sort it out. And suddenly one thing, state intervention is a good idea. But as soon as we pass that, 
past the worst of that, they come back in, profiteers, advocates of capitalism saying, you know, we've got to cut off these excess jobs, um, we've got to asset strip, etc. In order to get the economy lean and healthy again. But capitalist logic doesn't work on all of this, right? Because if the transport industry had run under capitalist logic for the last six months, right, it would have wouldn't have agreed to turn its own passengers away. It would have said, carry on traveling, carry on paying our fares. And you know what the upshot of that be would be? They wouldn't be in the financial crisis they're in now, but thousands and thousands and thousands more people would be dead. Okay, so it is not right that transport, I'm not one to express sympathy for any transport bosses, but it's not right that transport companies, let alone transport workers and transport passengers, are being penalised for doing the right thing during a global pandemic. Um, so I shall I shall leave it at that. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Janine. So for those uh, comrades who've joined the meeting um, since we opened, welcome. Um, this is a uh, meeting put on by the Tube Worker Bulletin, which is a rank and file uh, socialist bulletin for London Underground Workers, published by the Socialist Group Workers Liberty. That was the first of our two speakers, Janine Booth. And next we've got uh, John Pencott, who's a network rail worker and RMT activist and lay tutor, um, who's going to talk about fighting job cuts and attacks on terms and conditions from a network rail perspective. So, John, over to you. Good afternoon, comrades. And thank you for Janine's very motivating talk, I'll, I'll say. So before I start, I, you perhaps all know Janine, but you perhaps don't know me. Before I start, I want to give you a bit of a background to fetch you up to date of, of why I think Janine's probably invited me onto this call. So I left school in 1979, so I went to the work for the National Coal Board. So I was involved with the miners' strike, but I was always a National Union Mine Workers activist, even as a young man. Okay, so I did 12 months on strike, fighting the very thing that you guys are about to fight. Okay, so I have got a good grounding in what's required. Okay, but I'm no different in that respect to many others out there, probably with the exception that I was a Nottinghamshire miner. So I was a Nottinghamshire striking miner. Okay, so we fought in the minority. All right, and we never give in. Uh, not to this day did we give in. Okay. Moving forward a little bit, I, I, you know, after the strike finished, I, I was sacked and blacklisted because I, I couldn't, I, I could, I, would, I couldn't be controlled after that, uh, and, and I lost my job in the in the coal industry, and you know, the rest's kind of history. Coming forward into network rail, so I've been involved with the RMT for a number of years, and and I've got mixed views on the RMT, different union altogether, different sort of atmosphere altogether, to be honest with you, and in a lot of respects, not the militant union that the National Union of Mine Workers are. Now, you know, you're welcome to have your own view on on that 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 viewpoint, uh, and and you know, I'll answer, I'll ask any any questions you've got about that. But what I will say to you is. Like like the the list of the long list of people that's under threat uh, of losing their jobs, I guess that your guy, you guys' backs are going to be firmly against the wall. Now you've got a straight choice. I see it. You, you can either capitulate and talk to surrender terms and do the best you can that way, or you can stand your ground and you can fight. Okay. Now I would prefer the latter. I'll be honest with you, because direct action, no matter what it is, 
is always more successful than than capitulation. I, I, I promise you that. Okay, but it's no good if it's just a handful of you guys fighting, and 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 in reality, the the rest of the workforce is is gonna uh, sort of cave in before it starts. So, the f- first and foremost, you must get the message out there. So, we all know what's going to happen in the next few months, or we should do. We're going to come under some some attack, and as Janine quite rightly said that. That the union negotiated away network, network rail no compulsory redundancy uh, clause. I think that was, you know, I think that was a absolute own goal of above all own goals. You could, you know, that that was a massive own goal. And now we 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 we're going to be fighting a fight that we wasn't necessarily needed, but but it's coming. You know, just the same as you guys are coming. Network rail are going to say we can't sustain this. Uh, we must start cutting and carving things up. Now, unlike Janine, I I think direct action is the right thing to do. I think strike action pays dividends. Okay, it it absolutely pays dividends. I'm not talking token action. I'm talking hard nosed direct action for prolonged or unknown periods of time. Okay. Because you'll win. Because believe it or not, they still need to run the net rail network. They just won't want to run it in a different way or a cheaper way. They still need people to work in the in the industry. They just need less people. And the scene is is is, is getting rid of some of you guys is is the the obvious easy, easiest thing to do. Now, if we make it n- not the easiest thing to do, they'll, they'll, there's a chance they'll go away until they're prepared. Now, I don't know how prepared Network Rail are or Transport for London or anywhere else, for that matter. But what I do know is we must be prepared and we must be prepared to, to take them on, okay? But we can't do that unless we've... Sp- spoken to our members and and got our members all on side every single one of them okay genuinely got them on side so a, a, a closure to a depot or a closure to a to a station or whatever it is it's under attack is a closure to everybody so i mean i am a dinosaur and i do get that you know but the the the, the traditional viewpoint of one out all out is is there it's in it's there it's going to become more apparent in months to come otherwise you will be divided we can't have divided workers we must stay united okay now the, as, as for the unions the national union I don't know what the answer is to try and to try and do that. But what I've got to, what I will say to you is they work for you. You don't work for them. They they they're there to serve us. It's our union. It's not it's not the top tables union. It's ours. And and they have no right whatsoever to sell or give jobs away. Okay? And 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 to be honest with you, that's that's really all I've got to say. It's nowhere near as as much as Janine, and and I haven't prepared nowhere near as much as Janine, and and full credit to her. But I will answer any questions, particularly about about uh, taking action 
whether it be strike action or overtime bans or secondary action or whatever it is you want to want to want to discuss but you've you it's no good just discussing it we've got to put that into 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 the workplaces and get our educate our members to exactly what's good what's going to happen if we don't do anything and what potentially we could achieve if we do grit our teeth okay strike action is a dirty business it's a horrible thing it's painful it's meant to be painful but it's not just painful for our members it's painful for the employers as well and we've got to hope and in some some respects the only hope we've got is it's more painful for them than what it is for us and it's up to the rest of us to make sure that that happens okay thank you